Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. We're racing forward to do our part to avert the climate hell that the U.N. Secretary General so passionately warned about earlier this week. President Biden pledges U.S. leadership and funding at U.N. Climate Summit. U.S. and China resume formal climate negotiations. Plus, that result means Democrats would once again control the Senate. Democrats hold on to thin Senate majority, holding line on U.S. climate policy. All of those thin majorities and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And let me tell you this evening. If we were ready for the green agenda, I'll raise my hand right now, but we're not ready right now. We're not prepared. We're not ready right now. What we need to do is keep having those gas-guzzling cars. Ladies and gentlemen, Georgia's Republican U.S. Senate candidate, Herschel Walker. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the election that continues to continue, uh, <laughs> continues to inform our outlook on the climate. But first, we're stuck dealing with what happened in Florida. Yes, we are. Hurricane Nicole caused an estimated 5 to $7 billion in damages after it slammed into Florida last week as a rare November hurricane, destroying roads, bridges, and dozens of beachfront buildings. That's according to AccuWeather. So another billion-dollar-plus storm as these things continue to pile up in recent years. Yes, they do. In other news, as we go to air, Democrats have retained their razor-thin majority in the U.S. Senate, but control of the U.S. House is likely to narrowly go to Republicans. Congress matters because it will determine where and how quickly funding is deployed for climate and clean energy projects under President Biden's landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act, and whether the U.S. will follow through on funding commitments to help developing nations adapt to the climate crisis. President Biden spoke at the United Nations Climate Summit, COP27, in Egypt on Friday, announcing that thanks to Democrats passing the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. is now on track to meet its pledge under the Paris Climate Agreement to cut its emissions 43 percent by 2030. Biden apologized for the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement during the Trump administration. Good. He should. And he urged major emitters that are responsible for man-made global warming, like the U.S., to move faster to cut greenhouse gas emissions to prevent overshooting 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming to avoid catastrophic impacts. If we're going to win this fight, every major emitter nation needs to align with the 1.5 degrees. We can no longer plead ignorance to the consequences of our actions or continue to repeat our mistakes. Everyone has to keep accelerating efforts throughout this decisive decade. Yes, we do. Of course, beginning with us, but hopefully what we're doing and that $400 billion we've allocated under the new bill is that... Uh, encouraging the rest of the world to do the same? It does seem to be helping. COP27 this year is focused on international climate finance under the Paris Agreement. That is getting rich nations that are primarily responsible for the crisis to boost funding to help poorer countries adapt to climate impacts and avoid becoming dependent on fossil fuels. After decades of resistance, there is some progress. Denmark pledged half a billion dollars to finance adaptation in Namibia. Europe, the U.S and Japan announced $20 billion to help Indonesia ditch coal. Overall, the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Australia are laggards on climate finance. Mm-hmm. Biden pledged that the U.S. will quadruple funding to help other nations fight climate change, increasing U.S. contributions to a climate resilience fund to $100 million plus $150 million in new funding for adaptation and resilience projects in Africa. However... Congress must approve any new U.S. funding. Exactly. The new Congress can stop all of that. Plus, President DeSantis can just call it all off. 
The U.S. also proposed launching an international carbon credit trading system, which would allow corporations to pay someone else to cut emissions. That would raise revenue for developing nations, but it was criticized as a way for rich countries to avoid taking responsibility for causing the climate crisis. And it matters because a new analysis from the global carbon budget concludes that at current emissions rates, nations will likely burn through their remaining carbon budget in nine years, causing the world to blow past that critical 1.5 degrees Celsius target under the Paris Agreement. Finally, some good news. Thank you. Biden's diplomacy blitz appears to be working. On Monday at the G20 meeting, the White House announced that the U.S. and China, the world's two biggest greenhouse gas emitters, will resume formal climate negotiations, which experts called a significant development, opening up a pathway for greater emissions cuts. So the U.S. and China are talking again about climate. There's that. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Come together right now. Over me. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com donate. While the Senate voted today to advance a marriage equality bill that protects same-sex and interracial marriage under federal law. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C. The vote was 62 to 37, with 12 Republicans joining every Senate Democrat. This clears the way for a historic vote later this week to pass what's called the Respect for Marriage Act, which had previously been approved in the House. The Supreme Court ruling in Oberfell opened the door to marriage equality nationwide. But as the blow to Roe v. Wade concretely demonstrated, court rulings are vulnerable. That's why there's been such a push to enshrine marriage equality in federal law. And this week, Interfaith Alliance, in coalition with a number of faith-based groups, brought religious leaders from across the country to Washington in support of the Respect for Marriage Act. As we celebrate the passage of this historic act just days ago, I want to look at how this movement came to be and the critical issues facing us next with the National LGBTQ Task Force FaithWorks Director, Reverend Nicole Garcia. The pain and impact of the September 11 terrorist attacks reached far beyond the initial tragedy. In the days and weeks following, hate and violence against ethnic and religious communities shattered lives across the country. To recognize all the hate crime victims of 9-11, House Resolution 662 is currently under review by the House Judiciary and Oversight Committee. The goal of House Resolution 662 is straightforward, and I'm going to quote it here. Honoring the victims resulting from hate crimes, Islamophobia, and anti-immigrant sentiment in the aftermath of September 11, 2001, where individuals were targeted by violence and hatred because they were Muslims or perceived to be Muslims. The Muslim Public Affairs Council, MPAC, has been working hard on this resolution, introduced by Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson of Texas. And we'll get a briefing from Muhammad Ali, Director of Policy and Government Relations at MPAC. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders in the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Mohammed Hur Ali is Director of Policy and Government Relations at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. This week, MPAC hosted a briefing on House Resolution 662 on Capitol Hill, and I'm happy he's with me in the studio today. Mohammed, welcome to State of Belief Radio. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, allowing me, and it's an it's absolute honor. Well, we are so pleased uh, to be in partnership with you on this. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, just introducing for people who haven't heard about the resolution, uh, what is the resolution? Quite simply, it's to honor the lives of those who... Um, were killed in the aftermath of 9-11. Obviously, we know what happened there. Muslim Americans, American Muslims were on the ground there. They were killed in Manhattan, you know, vendors all the way up to those who were in the buildings. But in the days after that, there was also, you know, I guess you could call them vigilantes or those kind of trying to seek justice, taking that into their own hands. And they went out and murdered Muslims and those who they perceived to be Muslims based on the way they looked. Um, You know, later on today, we're hosting an event on Capitol Hill, like you mentioned, and that event is going to include somebody who was uh, not killed, but he was shot in the face. Um, And he was one of the main reasons why this legislation was actually introduced. Um, We're also going to have a conversation with a widower whose husband was uh, murdered as a result of these attacks. So, it, you know, not only were American Muslims killed on 9-11 in New York, in in Washington, um, you know, they were also killed in the days following, and yeah. this- it's it's like tragedy upon tragedy, and and this kind of this 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 um, violence that was lashed out against innocent people, uh, and and as you say, this is against Muslims and also those who were perceived to be Muslims. So this is this is you know recognizing Islamophobia, recognizing anti-Muslim hate, but it's also recognizing that. The people who were affected, it spans a wide range of people, including, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Hindus and Sikhs. This is this is really these are all Americans who were targeted just for the way they look and the way they were perceived. Am I right? And uh, I mean, absolutely. It was just because of the perception that they were either American Muslims or uh, the way that they looked as if they were American Muslims. Um, infamously, a gentleman who was wearing the traditional garb for uh, what, what Sikh Americans wear just because the, uh, the perpetrator of the attack assumed that he was an American Muslim, uh, he was murdered. Yeah. And, and that kind of discrimination wasn't, you know, it continues to this day. Um, and, and it's tragic to see that kind of unraveling of the moral fiber of our society, of the foundational infrastructure of why we were created as a nation so many hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I, I think that that's I, I, I think one of the you know, I, I have the honor of being um, part of this effort on the Hill and moderating a panel. And one of the things I'm really interested in in hearing is like what it has meant not to have this suffering recognized. Really, you know, ignored by the American government when these are Americans who were who were attacked. I mean, it just seems like what do you think it would mean to the families, uh, friends, um, those who hold these people in their memory? What would it mean for the United States to say a resolution in condemning that violence? There's really it's not about money. It's not about anything. It's just about recognition and healing. The healing process can't begin without basic recognition. If we're not acknowledging that people were harmed, they were killed, some were maimed, like um, the gentleman who will be speaking at the event on Capitol Hill later today, how can you go uh, towards healing? And how can you go towards attacking or reversing some of the issues that led to those attacks and building a stronger, um, stronger society that allows for not coexistence, but allows for us all to get along and build up a better nation that we all strive to do. Right. So healing is the beginning. Recognition is, is is what's required for any of the steps to go forward. Right. And tell me a little bit about MPAC and what, you know, the, the origins of it and, and a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit more about how you come to this work personally. So I am um, an American Muslim, and I uh, moved to Washington, D.C. after college in early 2010, and I got an internship on uh, Capitol Hill on the Senate side. And, um, and you know, I, I didn't come out here with a specific agenda. It was more so the recession was uh, where it was. Jobs were limited, and I got this incredible opportunity. And in the first couple of years, I was able, or the first year, I was able to get to a position where I was um, you know, participating or helping advise the U.S. senator that I was working for and ended up staying for about six years. And uh, my uh, portfolio is mostly national security and foreign policy. And in the years following for about the last six, I've been also kind of in the government relations and nonprofit space and uh, joined the Muslim Public Affairs Council late summer of last year. Uh-huh. 
And one of the things that really drew me to uh, MPAC was the solutions-based way that we are trying to promote the right policy. It's not just sitting back and saying this is bad or that's bad. It's actually getting into the weeds of how policy is created, going to those who are you know, who are who are in charge of how policy is being either created or implemented, you know, from Capitol Hill to the administration and working with our partners, both in the interfaith community and in civil society. Um, our president, we're based in Los Angeles and our president and co-founder, Salam al-Mariyadi, frequently works with other uh, works, works with his colleagues and his partners in um, interfaith alliances, whether it's with uh, Christians or members of the Jewish community. Um, you know, after the most recent attack on a synagogue, he was right there working with, yeah. uh, working for the healing process that we talked about. Absolutely. I think that that's what's, you know, I, has impressed me so much about MPAC over the years is that this is, and any, frankly, any group that really cares about their own community recognizes that you can't just care about your own community it's it's wider so that when when you see anti-jewish hate or anti-sick hate it it it's not it, it's it's not completely divorced from anti-muslim hate the, you know and and we we need to recognize that we we can come together we can recognize one another's uh, challenges and uh, adversities and show up for one another. And I think that that's, that's one of the reasons Interfaith Alliance is so glad to show up with, be one of the signers of this resolution, in support of this resolution, and also, and also to um, recognize that, listen, no faith community in America should, be, um, should feel complacent when others are being attacked. And so we all need to show up for one another. And I see that MPACT is is doing that so beautifully. Absolutely. And it's almost as if we should take a page out of NATO's book and attack on one is an attack on all. Oh. You know, yeah. whether it was the synagogue in, in Texas or whether it is combining and, and joining when, when, you know, American Muslims are doing an Eid prayer is that we are together in times of grief, in times of mourning and in times of happiness and joy. Um, and then it's also important to kind of learn from one another. It doesn't have to be in these uniquely momentous occasions. One of my colleagues in the Los Angeles office, um, you know, she runs what our, our program called uh, the Mustard Seed Project. And there we bring together American Muslims with evangelical Christians. Now, you might think historically those two groups are not going to sit in the same room and have fruitful conversations. But this has proved in that it is exactly possible. It, this is possible. Oh, completely. I mean, you know, and the, and and shows like, oh, you're human. You know, I mean, this yes. is like what it comes down to. And and for for more for you know, sometimes in my own history, when I worked at Princeton, sometimes you know, even if if people are more religious. They actually really like being with other people who are actually religious, right. you know, and, and find, oh, you take your faith really seriously. That's interesting. And other people find other ways of connecting. But the idea that we can't talk to, to one another, the idea that there's like us and them is just like it, it just seems to me like it's a dead end. Yeah. And it also is absolutely not the, the way we're going to achieve our country as 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 James Baldwin described it. Absolutely. I mean, I think thing, having faith in, in a higher power really brings people together. And if we're able to get back, uh, get away from, you know, what one might call cosmetic differences, we're going to be able to build that network of what we all believe to be, you know, at least in the work that I do, policies, um, you know, get to policy goals that are really going to help all Americans, regardless of faith, regardless of, you know, the way they pray, if they pray, regardless of their religion, regardless of socioeconomic class. I mean, some of the basic, um, you know, ideas espoused in terms of helping those who can't help themselves, yeah. or as people frequently talk about, you know, you got to pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Well, you got to be able to reach your bootstraps to be able to come up and pull yourself <laughs> up. And Right. You need to have boots in exactly. order to have bootstraps. So also like, you know, the Constitution and the promises of this country are for everyone. And uh, and so I think that's the reason, like, I feel as a Christian, I need to show up for this resolution um, and say, like, um, you know, the, the fact that the United States has not acknowledged this suffering and this violence mm -hmm. is is a is an absolute oversight and it can be changed. And this is something doable and we should do it now because I'm I'm curious, you know, how does this relate to. Where we are as 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 far as a nation and Congress, you must you know you're in D.C. You know you just had the midterms. Like I'm curious how you feel both this bill and other bills that you might be advancing 
How do you feel? What are you feeling these days? Well, I mean, I think that going, we're about, what, a month and a half away from the two-year anniversary of what happened on January 6th. And, you know, what was just on a personal note, what was so saddening and so truly saddening was, I remember when I was an intern going back so many years, is I used to give tours in exactly those places that were then stormed, taken down. But, you know, we talk about healing and we talk about before healing comes acknowledgement. There needs to be a stronger acknowledgement of who these people are. I mean, they're white supremacists. The administration, both um, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, ODNI, these institutions have declared that white supremacists are the greatest threat that we face. One of the ways that those behind some of these movements are disseminating that um, hate is, you know, on social media through what is known as the great replacement theory. Right. One of the ways that we are trying to move in a, you know, the right direction in terms of ensuring that we are all safe as, as Americans is what we have developed as a counter narrative to that. Talking about how it isn't as if. Um, you know, the the folks that they are espousing are being replaced, when instead we are a pluralistic society that has been thriving. And one of the ways that we have been thriving is through expanding uh, the pie, allowing for stronger economic growth, allowing for, um, you know, developing a, you know, mosaic that is richer, deeper, and provides value to all of those, regardless of background. Yeah. Well, I I, I mean, I I was on your website. I think you're calling it the great enrichment. Correct. I think I thought that was, you know, messaging matters. Like we forget how, you know, we have good ideas and then we like, you know, ramble like I'm rambling for, for a paragraph after paragraph. And the great enrichment is such a good way to describe this. It's absolutely true. Our country is made better and better by the more people who are in it and contribute to the the richness of our the fiber of our society. I think impact by the way, let's just uh, impact.org uh, is that the way people can get to your website? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, go to the website, look at all the cool things that Impact is doing cuz you guys are really like so valuable and have been such good partners I will say to interface Faith Alliance over the years like this, you know, you show up um, and you show up for things that are, again, like not just, you know, for for Muslims alone, but actually that you recognize that this is something that will benefit everyone. And we just, you know, all of us need to take a page out of that book. I think it's just so incredible. You know, we we have been talking like one of our big focuses over the last um, kind of six months has been what we're calling Christian nationalism, Mm -hmm. which is not disconnected with white nationalism, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. is that at January 6th, people were were waving Christian iconography and Christian symbolism, which to me as a, as a Christian, as a, is just so terrible and blasphemous. So I'm, I'm wondering how you as, as a Muslim and as a religious minority in this country, Mm -hmm. you know, see the, the conversation about Christian nationalism evolving. I think that the first part that, um, you know, it's again, it goes back to acknowledgement. Um, we have to, um, like we were talking about the acknowledgement of, uh, of what happened in the days following 9-11. There needs to be an acknowledgement of where some of these, um, you know, the, the areas of which the hatred is being disseminated when it came to um, what happened on January 6th and continues to evolve through the Great Replacement Theory. Um, you know, one of the things that we specifically say in our counter narrative, um, you know, the greatest, uh, the great enrichment theory is that the U.S. government, specifically those in the intel community and the law enforcement groups, they need to be able to consider that these Christian nationalists, white supremacists, they have to be able to mark them as, um, you know, threat as transnational threats and then right. deal with them accordingly. That's right. It doesn't matter what faith you um, purportedly follow if you are indulging in some of these extreme views you can't be it can't be sort of this double standard between because you follow this faith you're going to be categorized in this in, right. in this bucket if right. you follow this one you're in this bucket right you know a threat is a threat is a threat terrorism is terrorism i i mean i think it's absolutely true i mean this is like what was happening there was terrorism people were attacking the our greatest institution mm-hmm. the capital right i i mean it, it is astounding to me that a certain someone announced yesterday right and, and after we have learned all we have learned mm-hmm. about that certain someone's role in January 6th, encouraging people to attack our democracy. I, I just like, you know, sorry, I'm like having a little moment here. This is not an, a partisan moment. This is an American moment. 
Right. And I think that that's one of the things that we actually, um, you know, ask from members of Congress and those in leadership in both parties. This is not a partisan issue. No. You Democrats, Republicans and every policymaker of all stripes, shape, background, whatever it might be, should be able to come out and say forcefully that these ideas are bad. They're bad for you. They're bad for me. They're bad for us. And they are in di- they're diametrically opposed to the foundational structure of, of the United States of America. Totally. To the, you know, the, the experiment that was, uh, you know, that is democracy. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely. I mean, thank you for saying that. I want to just make sure that we have a chance again to talk about the resolutions and what people can do, because, uh, you know, the I would love for the listeners of this program to feel like they imp- are empowered to uh, to write, to call their their representative and say this. So what is the exact act? Is it, right now it's in the it's in committee, right? It's Correct. In, yeah. It was referred to two committees, uh, House Judiciary and House Oversight. Um, the next step would be to call the chairman of both and um, ask for it to come up for a committee vote. Uh, sometimes that's, that may not be possible given the time constraints we're going to go into where well, we are already in lame duck. Yep. Um, and then ask your member of Congress to say this is something that's important. This right. is why it's important. Right. Listen and come and attend um, You know, in person if you're able to. We're going to be, I believe, in Rayburn shortly. Um, and if you're not, uh, join us um, You know, virtually and listen to the stories. Honestly, let that be your North Star on how you decide whether or not you want to join and, and, and help this resolution pass. Yeah. And if you are interested, I, I promise you, listen to the powerful testimony you're going to hear in just a couple of hours. If you're not able to be moved by that, then I think a little bit of self-evaluation might be necessary. <laughs> but the next step is reach out to your member of Congress. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to those around you. Talk to, if you know, you're know you part of the faith-based community, talk to those who are of you know similar uh, background or those who are just overall in the faith-based community. Yeah. It's, so a, re- a recording of this event will be will be possible is is going to be could they could could people find that on your website? We're going to be able to post both the recording as well as the live stream. Uh, oh, the okay, well. okay, great. Well, people will I I my uh, people are going to be able to hear the recording of this event uh, uh, if they go to mpac.org, dot org. Yes, and uh, and um, so so what are what are some things if you look at the incoming. Um, you're, you're, this is we're in DC, and so I'm going to get all DC, even though I'm, I live in New York. So, sure. I, but but when I'm in DC, I want to get all into politics. What do you imagine other um, other other initiatives? Uh, I love mustard seed. I I love the um, the the great enrichment. Is there anything else that that you all are are doing that uh, our listeners should know about? Well, one of the things that we are, um, you know, the the countering white supremacy and domestic terrorism is something that we've been working on for years now. When it comes to a report um, about what it is white, what what is white supremacy, to a report that we have produced on domestic terrorism versus, or the way that domestic terrorism is treated versus um, foreign terrorism, and how there's a discrepancy which leads to bad outcomes. Um, but we're also getting to the the essence of the issue through the Great Replacement Theory and our counter narrative, uh, the Great Enrichment Theory. But going even forward, this is an assault on our democracy, which is why this year we had what's called the Our Sacred Honor campaign. We had members of Congress attend. We had, um, you know, uh, leaders in civil society. Um, we had uh, to, uh, they attended a number of events that we hosted around the country in Washington, D.C., in Atlanta, in Chicago, um, and had a conversation about where, what is the status of our democracy? Is this something that is getting better or is there an erosion of our democracy? And if so, why and what is it that we can do better? What did you learn? Uh, we learned that indeed there is an erosion, but there is a desire to make it better. There is a desire to get back to a place where there isn't a feeling of it being under threat, but we need to do so with specificity. It's, it's happening on social media. One of the things that we're going to be working on going into the next year is how and if social media companies, major social media companies, should re- be required to moderate some kind of content that is being placed or, or, or put on their platform. Should you be able to espouse some of these just hateful ideologies, the, the hateful rhetoric, and yeah. not be flagged as, as hate speech? Yeah, it is a timely conversation, especially given the um, dumpster fire that is Twitter these days. Talk about erosion. I mean, really, like a shameful erosion. Not just for the Muslim community. This is this is for uh, the black community, for Jews. Saying, oh, I'm a free speech absolutist. Mm-hmm. And saying, okay, yeah, people can say any. No, we can't. You know, this is a responsible society. Yeah. You can't shout fire in the movie theater. Exactly. You can't uh, provoke Hatred, we've seen the result of it. We've seen how it works. 
you know, I've been on the internet like since the 90s. Religion in the internet has been my thing. And I just feel like that does not mean you leave your responsibilities at the door mm-hmm. and our responsibilities to our neighbors and, and to, you know, uh, I just think it's like absolutely terrible what's happening to Twitter and going exactly in the wrong direction. Yeah, and even preceding what just most recently happened, it's something that we have been actively following and trying to figure out, work with all those who are, you know, in the space. It's not just following one lane that might be exactly what we want them to be saying, that we are kind of, like, siloed in that uh, in that category in terms of, like, we don't want it to become an echo chamber. We want it to be able to evaluate all sides of the debate and come up with our own strategy yeah. and how to proceed forward. And that's something that we, we like to we like to do across the board. We have this uh, program called the Congressional Leaders uh, Development Program where we bring um, American Muslim students from all over the country and we help them get internships on Capitol Hill. But it's a bipartisan, nonpartisan program. We want them to get the con- the, the experience of knowing what it's like to be um, in the in, in the world of policymaking. But it's not just on the policy side. We also have a program similar to that in uh, Los Angeles where we're trying to bring um, American Muslims and put them in the, uh, where, uh, you know, the screenwriters' rooms. Oh, yeah. We are trying to share with yeah. that side of what seems like a different world, but it is only three time zones away, and, and make sure that um, <laughs> those who are working in that space, um, Sue Abedi, who is the head of our policy, our, our, our Hollywood Bureau, is leading those efforts. I love it. Um, you I had mentioned, um, you know, we one of the things that we um, really kind of focus our work to just kind of at the very top of our, um, you know, counter narrative is talking about how what happened in Buffalo when 10 uh, African-Americans were killed in his in the shooter's manifesto and the shooter's kind of like, you know, what he had uh, housed in his home. It talked about the great replacement theory and the desire for non-whites and specifically black Americans that they were trying to be that they were going to replace those um, who were of his, uh, you know, religious and, and, and social background. You know, as we are working, we have an African-American Insight Council that is kind of working with MPAC also in Los Angeles. And we, we want to hear from as many people as, as, as often as we can to develop the right solutions to, you know, make us make America a better, um, more, you know, rich country and yeah. rich being in every sense of the word. Yeah, well, and that's the I think looking at all the different ways, this is not like you can't just create laws and not ex- work, work on culture. And mm-hmm. so all of these ways are great. Um we just this is this is fascinating work. I'm excited to be working alongside you. Honored that Interfaith Alliance is uh, working alongside MPAC and so many other groups. Muhammad Hur Ali is director of policy and government relations at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. This week, MPAC hosted a briefing on House Resolution 662 on Capitol Hill. Muhammad, thank you for coming in and taking the time with State of Belief Radio today. Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor. We need to take another break, but there's lots more still ahead on this week's show. Up next, Reverend Nicole Garcia, Faith Works Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You can also find links to topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. I have a guess the quote right out of the box for you. Oh, Chris. good. Okay, Didn't let's see do this, this coming, did you? Let's, let's do this. Right. What Tuesday night's midterm election results suggest is that former President Donald Trump is perhaps the most profound vote repellent in modern American history. Klondike Cat. No, that would be uh, Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. Oh. Yo. Oh, goodness. <laughs> wow. The Wall Street Journal. Who had another scathing? Deals. No. And we were saying when he gets indicted, uh, they will have a choice to make. Oh. I say finish him. Finish him. He was colicky overnight. Did you Pardon see me? That? Yeah, oh yeah, he was colicky. Was he colicky? I got that. I got that. I have the statement from the office of the 45th press. Yeah, he seems, he seems uh, glued. <laughs> Can I just say, um, I agree with Andrew Wortman. He said, I think Democrats are going to hold the House and the Senate when all is said and done, every ballot is counted. I've said that. I've said it. Uh, Dave Wasserman, uh, Jamie Harrison just retweeted this. Uh, After last night's Nevada mail ballot trend, excellent chance now that Dems will have a 50-seat control in hand heading into the Georgia runoff. The uh, Catherine Cortez Masto 
race is looking good. Um, and can I just say, I am so with Ellie Mistal. He said, remember when Gretchen Whitmer won re-election in a battleground state and actually helped Mich- Michigan Dems sweep control of state government and did it all despite a literal kidnapping plot? That all happened, and I'm sure the media will fawn over Ron DeSantis. Are we going to do this again, media? Yeah. Really? Are we going to do this again? I, I, I've seen a lot of Whitmer be- coverage. Right, but I mean, is it because she's a woman? All the thing is, that, yeah, all the it's, coverage it's, is about it's, anointing it's, Ron it's DeSantis. because De- DeSantis is like their hope to get rid right. of Trump. Right, but also, like, here we go, horse race for 2024, blah, blah, blah. And Jerry Polis yeah. did it in Colorado, too. Another uh, rock star. Yes. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what pitfalls does Medicare Advantage pose? And what is the Medigap trap that many people are unwittingly falling into? To find out, we spoke to Diane Archer founder and president of Just Care USA, an independent digital media hub covering health and financial issues facing boomers and their families. As a general rule in almost every state but four, if you want to switch to traditional Medicare, once you've been in Medicare Advantage for more than 12 months, you have no right to buy supplemental coverage. In traditional Medicare, you get that coverage from the doctors you want to see when you want to see them. Pretty great. There's an issue though. You need supplemental insurance to fill gaps in traditional Medicare. And that costs about $2,500 a year. You don't have a right to that insurance except when you first enroll in Medicare at 65. And so if you join a Medicare Advantage plan and stay more than 12 months, then you no longer have that right to buy Medicare supplemental coverage, except in New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Maine. So That means that you're locked into your Medicare Advantage plan at a time when you want access to specialists who are not perhaps in the network that your Medicare Advantage plan covers. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. I have a guess the quote right out of the box for you. Oh, let's let's do this. What Tuesday night's midterm election results suggest is that former President Donald Trump is perhaps the most profound vote repellent in modern American history. Klondike cat. No, that would be uh, Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. Oh, goodness. And we were saying when he gets indicted, they will have a choice to make. I say finish him. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You've got us 24 hours a day on your mobile smartphone via the Progressive Voices app. This is the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. The Reverend Nicole Garcia is FaithWorks Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. She's in Washington along with many other faith leaders to urge the Senate to pass the Respect for Marriage Act. Interfaith Alliance and its partners have been working nonstop for this important legislation, and I am so happy to welcome Reverend Garcia today. Welcome. Thank you so much. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, you know what? It's it's kind of amazing that we have to be here, isn't it? We're in a moment in our country where some of the rights that we are beginning to be comfortable with and enjoy as people <laughs> um, are, are all of a sudden at risk because of an activist Supreme Court, which we've already seen. And so so we need to actually take this moment with this Senate and say, no, 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 we're not going back. Um, So talk to me a little bit about how you see specifically this bill working in American legal uh, reality, as well as just in Americans mindset and spirit. Well, what this bill really does is not 
increase or change what is happening right at this moment, but rather taking action by Congress to ensure that individuals who can legally marry will have those marriages recognized throughout the country. You know, before 2015, that wasn't the case. Um, for example, I had dear friends who were married in San Francisco in 2008. There was a short period of, of time when California was issuing marriage license to same-sex couples, and they got married, and then they left California and went home, and they weren't sure if their marriage was legal in the state where they resided. Now, what the 2015 decision did in Obergefell was to ensure that all legal marriages are legal throughout the country. It's not yeah. telling anybody you have to perform marriages. It's not yeah. telling anybody you have to do anything. It's just basically ensuring the rights that we have at this very moment are maintained. Absolutely. And as I learned more about this bill, I didn't realize that DOMA was still on the books. And, yes. you know, I mean, this is actually rectifying a wrong, in fact, also, like, we're not getting out in front of anyone. This is actually no. really now, it is consensus opinion. And as you know better than anyone, this is consensus opinion with almost every religious group in America. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Like, th we are not getting out in front of our skis or asking senators to do anything radical. We're just asking for things to be acknowledged in the reality that they are. Correct. This has wide bipartisan support. It passed the House a while ago, and it's been waiting in the Senate. And with all the Senate rules, we had to make sure that we had 60 senators who would vote to bring this bill to the floor. And it looks like that will happen very, very soon. I'll just interject. Hopefully, by the time you're hearing this broadcast, we have we have won this. But really, it's religious groups are pretty much unanimous. There are a few outliers, but religious groups are pretty unanimous on this. Yes, we have to recognize that individuals have the right and freedom to love who they love. We can't dictate who the heart desires. And you happen to love someone of uh, the same sex, your love should be recognized throughout the country. I have dear friends who are gay and lesbian, who are raising kids, who have been together for 20, 30, 40 years, who uh, have built lives together. And and a great fear is what if a burger fell were overturned and someone is driving across country and they get into a car accident and the person that you've been married to for 25 years, you're not able to make medical decisions because the state you happen to be in doesn't recognize your marriage. That would be devastating. It's just, just devastating. you know, this devastating. And, and you know, uh, as, as many people know, listening to this broadcast, that describes my family. I mean, I, we've been, my, my husband and I have been together for 20 years. We have two kids. And the idea that all of a sudden our marriage could be dissolved or not recognized is just, you know, it's what, just I just ask anyone who's on the fence about this, imagine that situation for your family uh, and, and how, how terrible that would be. I, it seems even more like wild to have to mention that this also talks about interracial marriage because yes. and, and and for for those who you know for those who are, are i think are younger um there they, you may not be aware of the incredible controversy that interracial marriage caused in this country it was illegal in many places uh, and uh, unfortunately it was many of the objections were coming from christians Who's, you know, who yes. were quoting the Bible, you know, it's all very recognizable. And uh, and so just talk a little bit about, um, you know, the why that's included in this bill and the importance of that as well, because there are interracial couples for whom this is not like distant memory. In the 1960s, 95 percent of Americans disapproved of interracial marriage. You know, I mean, like, you know, this mm -hmm. is like recent history. This I'm not talking about 1800s yes. here. I'm talking about 20th yes. century, late 20th century. So talk to me a little bit about how, you know, the advantage of this being inclusive, an inclusive bill. Well, this is all coming about because of a statement by, made by one of the conservative justices on the court and their, I believe, concurring opinion um, from the Dobbs case and that all the opinions uh, that have been made and 
um, the Loving Case, Obergefell, they were all mentioned. Um, and so we, we just cannot rely on the courts anymore to grant us the rights that we have worked so hard to obtain. We can't let those, those rights slip through our fingers. So this right. bill simply codifies the fact that marriage should be recognized, marriage between two people, no matter of their gender or their race or their ethnicity, they're valid throughout the United States. And right. the Congress, right. Congress cannot dictate to states who they can marry and can't marry. So we're not telling right. anybody who you have to marry. It's just the fact that if someone has a valid marriage license from one of the 50 states or the territories, my understanding is, then that right. marriage is valid. Right. Talk to me a little bit. You, your, your portfolio is at, at, the, at the task force is faith. Tell me yes. about how, how you feel faith, religion, spirituality fits into the wider um, uh, goals, ambitions of the task force. And specifically, when we're talking about this bill, like why is faith such an important part of, of the conversation when we're talking about a marriage equality? I have to go back and, and really first recognize and apologize for the fact that there are parts of the, I'll call it conservative church, that actively tell people who are LGBTQ that they are not worthy of God's love, that they are not welcome in God's kingdom, that they are inherently sinful. And I am a transgender Latina. I was raised in a conservative uh, family, Christian family. Um, but when I, in my 40s, came to the terms of the fact that I am transgender, I have always been a, a woman, and I'm a person of deep, deep personal faith, a faith that my mother instilled in my heart, a faith that um, keeps me afloat in this very, very difficult world. So personally, I'm devoted heart, mind, and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I am also Latina, born on December 12th, the feast day of La Virgen de Guadalupe. So I'm devotedly, um, I'm devoted to La Virgen de Guadalupe and the mother of God. So for me, it became a matter of bringing together my trans identity and my faith. And I want to give other people that opportunity. There's so many times I walked into LGBTQ uh, spaces wearing a clerical collar and people will come up to me and say, I used to be. I used to be Methodist. I used to be Lutheran. I used to be Catholic. But they, but they invited me to leave or were even more harsh. They told me to leave because I was no longer welcome. Well, there are places where you can be gay and Christian, lesbian and Christian, or you can be gay and Muslim, and you can be gay and Buddhist. I truly believe in a, an infinite God with infinite love. And to me, God speaks through Jesus and La Virgen. But to other people, God may speak to, uh, speak to them in other ways. And who am I to limit the love of God that someone cannot commune with God through Buddha or Muhammad yeah. Um, but as a practicing and a Lutheran pastor, this is where I start. This is my foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm, and well, I'm just, just so happy to say that my church, the ELCA, recognizes my ministry with uh, the task force as a call to ministry. That and is so, so this is, I mean, it's so wonderful. And, and, and I just think we have to just be really clear what you're doing is saving lives. Yes. Uh, and and you're also just making a clear claim. This is not religion versus LGBTQ people. This is recognizing that actually there most just because most Americans are religious, many LGBTQ people are religious of some faith yes. background or spiritual. And we are not going to put one group against another. It's just we're not we're not playing that game. And we're insisting no. that we're insisting to everyone that, like, we can come together. We can be together. And the fact that you exist, that I exist, does not mean that you can't exist. It just means that there's just going to be a little bit more room at the table. And that's fine. That's beautiful. And so so I, th I appreciate you. 
you, you know, what you're doing and, and how important faith is in the lives of people and in the, in the fight for marriage equality, because at, in the, in the, at the, at the, you know, base, at the base level, at the fundamental level, it's about love. It's about who Precisely. do you want to spend time with? It's about who do you want to commit your life with? Um, for better or for worse, as anybody who's had a relationship. But who do you want yeah. to commit with? And so, so it, you know, I just, I appreciate that so much. I want to, um, I want to just take a, a little bit of time to, to recognize while, while this bill is extremely important and really, you know, will, will be life-saving, there, there is so much work that we have to do and everyone has to do around trans rights in this country and trans rights to respect, dignity, and the right to exist and live without the threat of violence. And I just would love for you to talk a little bit more about that and specifically in the context of the Trans Day of Remembrance that is coming up on November 20th. Yes, this, um, I believe it's Sunday is Trans Day of Remembrance. And throughout the country, um, so many organizations, um, I, I'm part of an organization in my hometown of Boulder, Colorado, where we will recognize, hold a candlelight vigil um, to recognize over 300, I believe it's about 360 individuals who are transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming, who were murdered in this past year, almost 40 in the United States alone. Um, I did a faith-based remembrance service last Saturday in Boulder, and there were 37 people who were unknown, that their bodies were so badly beaten and burned that they could not be identified. That is horrific. And we're probably only talking about the tip of the iceberg because we don't, most law enforcement agencies don't collect gender identity. So we will know if someone is trans or non-binary if their family or friends come forward and let us know. So the numbers may be so much higher. And it is such an incredible crime. It breaks my heart that people who are just trying to live their authentic lives as God created them to be are brutally murdered for just being themselves. I mean, it is, you know, it is, it is, well, I'm a Baptist preacher, so I can say it's sinful what, what is happening. The, the, the hate that people have in their heart, the violence that people are using with their hands. And frankly, I, unfortunately, this has become an issue among, among some of our, uh, some Americans who've decided to target trans people for base mm-hmm. reasons of trying to instill fear and to get votes. And yes. I just think that's one of the most disgusting trends where people are like, oh, maybe, maybe like demeaning people can be a winning issue for us. Oh, it's, it is disgusting. And, you know, um, we've heard of the don't say gay laws, the, the attempts to make sure that transgender youth are not able to participate in sports. Uh, passing these laws that are just so hateful uh, against people who cannot defend themselves and the fear is instilled in parents um and and trans youth are just they're i should say easy targets because we all love children we want to protect our children and so when they bring up that fear about well they quote unquote us um, trans people are trying to recruit your children and trying to turn them away from you or turn them away from god um that we are going to use them and abuse them. It's not true. It's just yeah. not true. No, it's, I mean, it's, this is this is a you know, I think to a, to a lesser degree, the idea that anybody can be turned gay, you know, is no. just is also like equally untrue. But you know, I I also really feel, you know, for the trans youth themselves and for their parents who almost always are trying to do, they're trying to because they love their mm-hmm. child. They're trying to do what they think is right to care for their child and what the medical profession actually largely agrees is the right cure, uh, uh, care for a child. And then, yes. and then there's other people who have no vested interest in that child who are, uh, who are kind of, who come in and say, oh, well, you're doing it wrong. You, and, and what happened to parents' rights? It's all very good and well and good when it's in, mm-hmm. in support, but, you know, the inter- interrupting a family's attempt to care for their child 
I mean, yes. I, I, you you tell me. You know much better than I do. But that is that feels just absolutely like the worst abuse. It really is the worst abuse. And, you know, I'm also a licensed therapist in the state of Colorado, and I've worked with hundreds of trans people through the years. Um, and I follow the advice and uh, guidance of the World Professional Association, World Professional Association of Transgender Health, WPATH, and their standards of care. And they just came out with a new updated version, Standards 8. And you can't take a child in it's against medical advice to take a child in and say, well, go ahead and start them on hormones. I'll go ahead and no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. It's a no. long process right. that involves right. therapists and, and involves doctors and involves endocrinologists, a lot of specialists who love and care for this child. Nothing is going to be done with or for a child unless it is really deemed necessary. Yeah. Where, where, can, um, where can religious people learn more, anybody, Mm -hmm. but really like people who are coming from a faith angle, how can, where, how can those of us who want to learn more, do you have a, a, you know, resources at uh, the task force that people can go to, to learn more? As, as a matter of fact, I have a website uh, called the Institute for Welcoming Resources. Um, Now, when the task force uh, brought on a faith component, um, we brought along with us a lot of the major Protestant denominations all have welcoming programs. The Lutherans, I'm a Lutheran, have reconciling works, more like Presbyterians, welcoming um, uh, ministries network, which are Methodist. We all came together and uh, we all provide resources for families, for people of faith. And you can go to the Institute of Welcoming Resources to the website that I oversee. And there are just a plethora of resources that is um, that are coming out. can you give us the uh, the website address? Yes, and I should have that right in front oh, of me. It's okay. We, we, we you'll get it. You'll get it. It's It'll just uh, take me one that. moment. It, yeah. It's just called www.welcomingresources.org. I love it. That's easy to remember. Welcomingresources.org. That's a first step you can take um, that yes. we can all take in order to learn more. And it's fine. People, we we all have to learn. Like we all have to learn about about racism. We all have to learn about classism. We all have to learn about like people from different backgrounds and and immigration status. We no one has to be perfect, but I think you know. I mean, we all we all learn, and that's the great thing is that this is a resource for all of us to learn um, and for us to all grow. And once we stop growing, we're not alive anymore. So let's keep growing. Let's keep learning. Thank you for all you do at the task force and in your just as a living witness to the power uh, and the the grace of our world. We're so grateful to be in partnership with you in this work um, and and look forward to being to more fun projects that we can work on together. Fun. We can. I just want to. We can be joyful. You know, we can be joyful while we do this work and we're going to be, we're going to insist on it. So Reverend Nicole Garcia is Faith Works Director at the LGBT Task Force in partnership with Interfaith Alliance and a coalition of committed ally groups. We brought a diverse group of faith leaders from across the country to urge senators to vote for the Respect for Marriage Act. Nicole, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief Radio. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. And I just want to make sure that the people out there know that you have the right to call your senators, make your voice heard as well. Uh, Let them know that you you, um, support the Respect for Marriage Act and support all the work that the Interfaith Alliance is doing, that we are doing at the task force. And I look forward to many years of of, um, working with you and and the Interfaith Alliance. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. And I hope you will consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. 
Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for our special Thanksgiving show where I will be talking to one of the most spiritual, deep people I know, Rabbi Joshua Stanton. He's an amazing fellow. You're going to want to hear his wisdom. And we can all take a moment and breathe and be thankful for this world and for our life. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.